Today from the Global Lane, the government has the evidence, but was the FBI raid on Donald Trump's home legal justifiable? It was not. They could have enforced the subpoena in court uh, and made uh, President Trump turn over the 15 or so boxes. Profiles encourage. Even the U.S. ambassador to Australia has canceled attorney Alan Dershowitz for defending Donald Trump. I was seated next to Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of the former president, at a dinner party, and she said, if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't have come. Is Biden's drug price reduction plan good for seniors? Certainly in the near term, we're more likely to see higher prices than lower prices. Fired for advocating traditional values at a Christian school. That's a proper topic for the chaplain to talk about. So that's what I did. And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Choosing principle over politics. It seems we're now living in an era when a progressive woke agenda, quote, elevates identity over principle. And those who choose principle over partisanship pay a high price. Our next guest knows the cost. Joining us is constitutional scholar, former Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz. His latest book, number 50, by the way, is The Price of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Professor Dershowitz, I've, I've read your book, and in the conclusion you write, the price of principle is high and I'm paying the price. Please explain for our viewers, what price are you paying uh, simply for standing on your principles and why? Well, the price has been very high. I was uh, very much accepted by my community. Uh, I spoke at the library every year. Um, my books were in the library. Um, I spoke at uh, Temple Emanuel in New York, the 92nd Street Y. I've been canceled from all of those uh, venues because I stood up for principle, because I defended the right of President Trump not to be impeached on unconstitutional grounds. Uh, it's been both personal uh, and institutional. Personal. I was seated next to Caroline Kennedy, the daughter of the former president, at a dinner party, and she said, if I knew you had been invited, I wouldn't have come. This is the ambassador to Australia who's supposed to be able to be in the same room with uh, uh, leaders of foreign countries who won't be in the same room with a man who showed a profile and courage, uh, to paraphrase her father's uh, a book. Uh, the library canceled me. I used to speak there every year. Now, they didn't even carry my books until I threatened to sue them. Uh, so the price has been very high. My wife worked out in a gym and somebody walked in and said, oh, that's Alan Dershowitz's wife. We can't be in the same room with that person. Larry David came over to me while I was trying to have lunch and started screaming at me and yelling, you're disgusting, you're disgusting because I patted Mike Pompeo on the back, he's my former student, congratulating him for the cramp for, for the um, Abraham Accords. I have a thick skin, but taking it out of my wife and my children, and you know, other lawyers have now called and said, we won't defend President Trump because we don't want to be Dershowitz. We don't want to have happened to us what happened uh, to you. So, you know, it has an institutional uh, impact. I want to discuss the impeachment of, of Donald Trump and your defense of our 45th president. But first, although you didn't vote for him, you opposed many of his policies. And Trump knew that you had close connections in Israel. So during his presidency, he asked for your advice on Israel and the negotiating of the Abraham Accords, as you mentioned. And in your book, you write that no country in the Middle East or indeed the world today has faced threats comparable to those faced by Israel 
and boast a better human rights record. You spent time uh, talking about the boycott, divest, and sanction movement against Israel, especially Ben and Jerry's ice cream. Why do you believe we see so much criticism, even anti-Semitism, of the Jewish state? Well, first of all, I have consulted with every president since Nixon on, um, uh, I'm sorry, since uh, Clinton on Israel, um, uh, particularly with Obama. Uh, so any president that calls on me to help make peace in Israel, I'm going to support. Look, it's just international anti-Semitism. It's applying to the Jewish state the same uh, double standard and hatred that has been applied to the Jewish people uh, over time. Uh, I myself am pro-Israel, pro-Palestine. I want to see a two-state solution, but I don't want to see Israel singled out. I mean, Ben and Jerry is probably the worst example. Um, it, you know, was owned by Unilever, uh, a company which does business with some of the most oppressive regimes in the world, uses child labor, uh, and suddenly they're signaling out, singling out Israel because there's a dispute about the West Bank. Uh, you know, Israel gave up any control over uh, the Gaza in 2005 and uh, was willing to give up control over 95% of the West Bank in exchange for peace, but uh, Ben and Jerry decides that's the one country that we can't uh, do business in. So we fought it and we won. Well, you've lost many friends. You mentioned that, and I guess even some family members who avoid you now because you defended the constitutional rights of President Trump. And you write, quote, agreeing with anything Trump did, said, or wanted was blasphemy. And then you say the crowd had formed groupthink or lack of think took over. Uh, you defended him against impeachment. Why was that? Well, because it's unconstitutional. The Constitution provides only four grounds for impeachment, treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. They didn't charge him with that. Uh, they didn't charge him with any kind of criminal type or like behavior. They charged him with abuse of power and obstruction of Congress that are unconstitutional. So, of course, I would uh, defend him. But, you know, it's not just a question of individuals having um, uh, isolated me and my wife. There is now a group think in uh, Chilmark, Massachusetts, where I spend my summers and have 53 years. I came here to defend President, uh, I'm sorry, Ted Kennedy, Senator Ted Kennedy at Chappaquiddick. But now there's a rule in Chilmark. If you are seen in public with me or if you invite me to dinner, that's social suicide. You will never be invited. A good friend of mine who had been my student, had been my good friend for close to 50 years, uh, decided not to invite me to a concert he was sponsoring in his backyard. And he was very apologetic. He said he wanted to invite me. He didn't think I did anything wrong. But, quote, it would be social suicide for him if he in invited me. Another couple invited me to their daughter's engagement party, uh, my wife and I, and then uh, got uh, we got an email saying, no, you're disinvited because too many people said they wouldn't come if you were there. So it's not just individual people making their own individual decisions about who to associate with. It's just McCarthyism. It's what happened during McCarthyism in the 1950s, and I am going to fight back. But mostly I've been fighting back because the library, which is a state-sponsored government institution, canceled my speeches, canceled my books, and, um, you know, they carried 20 of my books uh, until I defended uh, President Trump. From the day I defended President Trump, the nine books I wrote since then, they didn't carry a single one of them until I threatened to sue them. Next up, President Trump and January 6th and the FBI raid on Donald Trump's Florida home. 
Alan Dershowitz also discusses his own legal challenges and weighs in on the Roe versus Wade decision and the U.S. Supreme Court. More now with constitutional scholar, former Harvard Law professor Alan Dershowitz and his latest book, The Price of Principle. Why integrity is worth the consequences. While many liberals think Trump should be prosecuted for his actions on January 6th, you believe his speech that day was protected by the First Amendment. Explain that. Well, I think his speech was wrong. I wish he hadn't given it. I think it uh, was um, a provocation. Um, although he used the words peacefully and patriotically, I think he should have uh, understood that uh, there were some who might misunderstand it. But the Brandenburg principle, the case in the Supreme Court on free speech involving a Nazi Klansman uh, who uh, advocated violence against African Americans, the Supreme Court said that was constitutionally protected. This is even a clearer case. How about the FBI's recent raid on uh, Trump's Mar-a-Lago home and the search for and seizure of classified documents? Was that justified, legal in your opinion? It was not. Uh, they should have persisted on their subpoena. They could have enforced the subpoena in court uh, and made uh, President Trump turn over the 15 or so boxes. But instead, they decided to engage in a very widespread search, which also uh, involved the seizure of, of not only classified material, but lawyer-client privilege material, executive privilege material, and probably declassified material. So the search was far too broad, especially when a subpoena could have sufficed. I'm sure that bothers you that they, they also uh, received those communications between, with his lawyers. I mean, that's private information. And, they, and the Justice Department says, don't worry, trust us. We set up a taint team of our own Justice Department lawyers to go through it and see what's privileged. Now, uh, imagine what would happen if one of the Justice Department lawyers on the taint team read a email that said, lawyer-client privilege, absolutely privileged, confidential, but it had some really juicy stuff about Trump that would destroy his chance of ever winning the presidency again. Do you think that wouldn't get leaked? Does anybody in the world believe that that would remain confidential? But if these rules continue to be applied with taint teams by the Justice Department, the lawyer-client privilege will be completely disabled. And your reputation was damaged by some members of the media who accepted as fact sexual allegations made against you there's no presumption of innocence until proven guilty. So why didn't you get a fair shake from the media? Well, I don't need a presumption of innocence. I have an absolute proof of innocence. I have the accuser's own lawyer. The accuser has made lie after lie. The accuser has accused George Mitchell, Ed Barack, Bill Richardson, Al Gore, uh, Bill Clinton. He's accused everybody in the world. And uh, the evidence is all to the contrary. I had the former head of the FBI do an analysis and he concluded that uh, I was right and she was wrong. So I don't want to operate under a presumption of innocence. I am factually absolutely innocent. I never met the woman, never heard of her, certainly never touched her, certainly never had sex with her. Uh, during the relevant time period that I knew Jeffrey Epstein, I've had sex. Wonderful, wonderful woman, my wife. Uh, we just celebrated our 36th anniversary. Well, congratulations on that. And I can't let you go without asking you about the Supreme Court, because I know you opposed the court's decision striking down Roe versus Wade, but you don't think Democrats should respond by packing the court with more left-leaning justices. Tell us about that. 
Well, I'm totally opposed to court packing. Um, it would just start a cycle of every time one party controlled, they would pack the court more with their own justices. It will end up with a Supreme Court that would have to meet in Yankee Stadium. There'd be so many justices. I do think that the Supreme Court overreached in the case in which they overruled Roe versus Wade. That issue wasn't really presented to them. Uh, the issue was whether or not the Mississippi statute, which precluded uh, abortions after 15 weeks, was uh, unconstitutional. So the Supreme Court could simply have decided that case, as Chief Justice Roberts said they should have, and that was the side that I was on. So how do you think we get beyond all this, Professor Dershowitz? Do we, you know, we're, we're in this era now where you have to join the tribe and be part of the tribe and have the group think, as you mentioned. Uh, how do we get beyond that and get back to reasonable uh, uh, dissertation and dialogue and debate? It's going to be very hard to get back. I was hoping that Biden would do it. I was a strong supporter of Biden because I thought he could help unite the country. He's a compromiser by nature. Um, it hasn't happened. I've been a little disappointed. I'm still going to vote for him again if he runs and is healthy. Um, but nonetheless, I'm disappointed that he hasn't done a better job in uniting the country. And, and you're right that uh, it, most Americans are right in the center. And so we see the yeah. shifting of the pendulum. Do you think we're ever going to get back to this? I hope so. We've been through this before during the McCarthy period, during the anti-Vietnam period, and we've gotten back. This is perhaps the worst that I've ever seen. And um, the danger is the hard left is so intolerant and so totalitarian in its mindset, and they're the teachers of our future leaders. And so I worry much more about the totalitarian mindset of the hard left than I do about the totalitarian, totalitarian mindset of the hard right, which also exists. Both are wrong, but the left today is more dangerous than the right. And we could go on and on. I'm sure even talk about what's happening on campus. I know you're concerned about that. But the new book, your 50th, by the way, is The Price yeah. of Principle, Why Integrity is Worth the Consequences. Professor Alan Dershowitz, thank you for taking the time to share your insights with us. We appreciate it. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. The U.S. government's plan to negotiate Medicare drug prices with Big Pharma may actually result in higher costs and fewer new drugs available to senior citizens in the long run. Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment, describes the new law as a classic mob-style, quote, offer you can't refuse, a plan that is presented in a way to win the votes of seniors. He's here to explain. Phil, it's good to talk with you again. So members of Congress and the president are calling this drug pricing reform, but you contend it will make matters worse. Explain. Well, it's important to understand, Gary, that when they say negotiation, uh, they're really only using that word because it polls well, because it's popular, because people like the idea of it. But the centerpiece of this bill is actually uh, giving the Secretary of Health and Human Services the power to set prices for the most popular uh, most widely used drugs in Medicare. Uh, it's not a direct price control because they have sort of this uh, pretend negotiation where the secretary sets a price and if the company disagrees with it, they don't have to go along with it, but they get taxed 95% of their total sales of that product, which of course no company can ever possibly sustain. So in practice, 
it's government price setting. Now, when the government sets the price for something, uh, that always results in one of three things or some combination of the three. It either results in shortages, it results in a decline in quality, or it results in black market activity. You see that every time you have government price setting. And in the context of prescription drugs in particular, uh, the kind of shortages that you get are not shortages of the drugs that already exist, because those are typically very inexpensive to create one more dose of. They're shortages of drugs that don't yet exist, because those cost billions of dollars to develop. And so I think we're going to see a significant decline in research and development in the pharmaceutical sector, and therefore a lot fewer new drugs and treatments developed if this is allowed to take effect. It doesn't take effect until 2026. And so there's going to be a fight over the next several years to see if it actually takes effect. But that's kind of the central provision, Gary. And I think certainly in the near term, we're more likely to see higher prices than lower prices. Phil, everyone favors lower prescription drug prices. I know low-income seniors who are forced to choose between buying their medicine or food each month. So price controls may help insurance companies, but why won't they also help cut the cost for seniors who often find drug prices excessive? Won't it help at all? Well, I think that, uh, as I mentioned, um, I think that there are going to be some cross currents, some perverse incentives to raise prices rather than lower them in the near term, which certainly won't uh, help those people. I think that uh, to answer your question, though, let's say a price control were, were perfectly effective. It did exactly what it's supposed to do, and it forced down prices. Uh, well, that's still going to cause shortages. It's going to mean that, that new breakthrough drugs may not be covered by Medicaid at all if companies uh, decide not to participate. And that could actually force seniors to pay out of pocket instead of getting coverage from their existing drug plans. And so there are a lot of ways that this could go awry. Uh, but what I would say in particular for those seniors that are hit the hardest by drug prices, is we've got to lower drug prices in a way uh, that fixes the drivers of costs that are making them so high now. It doesn't just layer more government regulation and bureaucracy on top of that. And what I mean by that is as long as it costs over a billion dollars to develop a new drug and bring it to market, drugs are going to be expensive. Even if you somehow shift those costs to taxpayers or you try to suppress them with price controls. So what I would say is we really need to focus on making the development and the regulatory approval process much less burdensome, much less costly. You know, one of the things we've seen over the last couple of years uh, during COVID is there really only seem to be a handful of companies that actually know how to get products through the FDA approval process. And smaller drug companies either partner with one of them or they get stymied and it takes years to get an approval. You look at the difference between BioNTech that partnered with Pfizer, got theirs through right away, and Novavax that said, we're going to go on our own. It took them years uh, to get an approval. I think we've got to have a process that is much less partial to a small number of companies and uh, is much less burdensome and bureaucratic. And maybe we could get the cost of developing a new drug and bring it to market down significantly and lower prices that way. But I would tell seniors that are concerned about how high costs are now, uh, first of all, that drug prices have risen much less than almost everything else in the economy. So we're doing something right rather than wrong in that regard. And uh, going forward, the most important thing is that we keep developing new drugs, that we have cancer treatments, that we have cures for Alzheimer's. And disrupting that incentive, which I think this Democrat bill is going to do, is really going to harm people's lives. Uh, and we need to find ways to lower costs that don't do that. Maybe incentives. Okay, Phil Kirpin, president of American Commitment. Thank you, Phil, for setting us straight today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Riding roughshod over truth, freedom of faith and speech in the United Kingdom. That's how Church of England pastor Dr. Bernard Russell described the actions of Trent College, 
when he presented his case before a judge this week. Reverend Russell is asking that his dismissal from the school be declared unlawful. In 2019, he was dismissed as school chaplain for preaching a sermon that presented a traditional Christian view of marriage and sexual identity. The pastor delivered the sermon after a student expressed concerns over implementation of Educate and Celebrate. That was a gender identity and sexual orientation training at the school. I'd heard other people expressing these concerns and doubts and confusions. I said, yes, this is an important topic for the chaplain as someone who's supposed to guide people through the maze of moral and ethical uh, life. That's a proper topic for me to talk about. Um, so. That's what I did. The school reported Reverend Russell to the government's counterterrorism watchdog group as a potential violent religious extremist. And Trent College told a local authority that the pastor was a danger to children. Following a disciplinary hearing, Reverend Russell was dismissed for gross misconduct. He won an appeal to the school's board of governors, but he was warned against broaching any topic or sermon that would distress members of the school body. Trent College required Russell's sermons to be reviewed by school leaders prior to delivery. Pastor Russell was furloughed during the COVID lockdown and then dismissed in December of 2020. The former Trent College chaplain contends the school discriminated against him for being too religious for the Christian school. Folks, unfortunately, unlike Dr. Russell, fewer pastors would take on today's woke culture. Here in the United States, a recent poll by George Barna and the Cultural Research Center found that only 37% of Christian pastors possess a biblical worldview. More and more pastors are allowing the prevailing culture to influence their churches instead of leading their churches to share the truth and influence the culture. In his Trent College sermon, Reverend Russell encouraged debate and discussion. Now, when ideologies compete, we should not descend into abuse we should respect the beliefs of others, even where we disagree. Above all, we need to treat each other with respect, not personal attacks. That's what loving your neighbor as yourself means. Folks, the judge hearing Reverend Russell's arguments this month must rule in his favor. A free society, in this case England, cannot remain free if it limits the speech and sermons of its pastors. Religious leaders and people of faith are the conscience of a nation. They provide the moral guidance that the people need in order to thrive as a society. Without their godly vision and speech, the people will perish. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on the CBN News and NRB channels, social media, and our broadcast affiliates. And until next time, be blessed.